Welcome to Hunger for Wholeness. I'm your host, Robert Nicastro. Last week, Ilya and Gabby spoke with theologian Grace G. Sun Kim. During their conversation, Grace shared the challenge of integrating the Eastern idea of chi into dualistic Western thought. Now, to follow up, Ilya connects this Eastern concept of energy to the new physics. Then, Gabby and Grace discuss the limitations of language, even theological language, for expressing the sheer depth of our human experience. The whole energy focus is so consonant with what we know today about reality, right? right. Quantum physics, I think, is one of our best descriptors of what the real is. And quantum physics, or what some people call quantum reality, is about energy fields. So we are energy like all the way down, right? To the tiniest, teeniest little lepton quark or whatever we are that makes up our cells and everything else. Yeah. And secondly, God is energy. I mean, we made God, but as you said before, Grace, you know, kind of the big guy in the sky, you know, and we're here trying to make our way back to the big guy. But in fact, God is love and love is, what is love? I mean, if it's not the energy of deep relationality, the unit of energy that, you know, attracts us and draws us onward to, to something more than ourselves. And so, you know, I think this holism that we can't really separate this energy of God and the energy of matter and the energy of our minds and hearts. These are all entangled fields of energy. Uh-huh. And therefore, kind of, first of all, being aware of what we are as energy, it may be one of the most important things that we do today. You're absolutely right. I think we do still separate these things into my head and my heart and my body. And, you know, and we, we think in parts, we act in parts, and therefore we're partials, you know, we're partials that are struggling for wholeness. So the other thing I think energy does for us, even in terms of God, um, and it's something that I'm thinking increasingly more about is maybe God is, is not up there, you know, because there's no there, there. <laughs> there's only here. There, there's the now. There's the experience of where we are. So maybe God is part and parcel of our materiality, what we call pantheism, you know, and not just that we're in God and God is in us as if God may be, oh, don't get too close to me, please, you know, because I'm God and you're not. But maybe God is really like the power of everything we are, that even when everything's falling apart and life is miserable, that there's a power here in our midst within us that says, get up and move on again, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with you there. As you were speaking, I was thinking when I talk about mythology, you know, I bring in energy and I also bring in vibration that, you know, everything vibrates. And when we think about the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to call the spirit or chi, chi is about vibration. And our whole body is just filled with energy and filled with atoms that vibrate. And when we look at the biblical passages about, okay, when God created the world, you know, through vibration, through speaking, it's all vibration. So energy, vibration, God is spirit. She is talking about this vibration and yeah. she is not just within ourselves. It's in all living things because all living things have this she and this energy and this vibration. Yeah. So that goes back to your terminal pantheism. Yeah. So it is this all intertwined. What you are saying, what I'm saying is all true. Or I don't know if you want to say truth, but we're saying the same thing, but through different words. Yeah. I think the other thing is here, 
It's the primacy of experience, right? Energy is about experience. Yeah. You know, when you feel energized, it's the experience of life that's felt in a more, well, vital way, you know? And when your energy is low, it's the experience of feeling, you know, disconnected. And that's so different from language, the way language just kind of parcels things out, you know, and puts them into little categories. And then we have to think through how these categories relate. There's something about language that I think the Western mind has built up a whole language repertoire to structure our world. And that kind of has thwarted experience, you know, like we're so worried about conceptual, you know, concepts and categories of language and and language that refers to abstract ideas, you know, and concepts like And really, it's about experience. You know, it's about the experience and the energy of our beingness. And I think I always tell my students, their languages are so limiting. You know, we cannot put some of our experiences into words, maybe beyond words or these categories that we come up with. And so, you know, the more languages that we speak, the better off we may be. And I bring in Korean words and terms that are very difficult to translate into the English language because, you know, different languages focus on different things. I think, you know, when we think about Native Americans, they have many words for different terms that we in the English language may only have one word. I think being aware of our own limitations in the English language or whatever language that you're speaking in. The Eskimos have so many words for, you know, ice or snow that we're not aware of. So I think just being aware of the limitations of our own languages and how I bring in Korean words and Asian terms into the to help enrich. And I think I'm not the first one to do it. German theologians brought in their own German words too. Yes. So we do it to enrich and help us explain the things that are so difficult to explain the divine and god and the energy the vibration and all these experiences that we experience gabby you're involved a lot in mathematics and mathematics is It's a type of language, you know, that really is much more, it's about relationships, right? I mean, where do you see the problem of language, say, in view of mathematics? Like, in view of mathematics, I think math is a very logical language, you know, if you're going to look at it like a language. I mean, I don't know how well you can express things through math, but I do think that, like, you know, everything's clear cut. Unlike, like, with languages, usually there's a degree of, like, kind of ambiguity like i know when i'm trying to translate stuff like i'm studying japanese right now there's always layers that i can't explain in english there's stuff that can't figure out how to say in english like i know what it means in my head but i can't say it with words i think math kind of makes sense but it's it's isolated because there's no there's not really much way to express normal concepts through math if that makes sense do you think language is limited And do you think, like, Grace, you know, we need to borrow language from different cultures in order to really get to the richness of our experience? I mean, I think language is always limiting. And 
yeah, I, I agree with you, Gabby. Language is so limiting. You know, as we get older, we may learn new words, and I think words are being helpful, or we can create new words. But I think it's all limiting because we're just finite beings. We cannot comprehend everything in the world. We cannot comprehend the infinite energy, God, or whatever you want to call the divine. So I think words are limiting, languages are limiting, but I think the more languages we have, I think the Korean language may have more adverbs or more of these types of words in the English language, then we can use those kind of words to help us expand our experiences, expand our understanding, and expand our theological language. Our theology is so constricting because we're like so worried about orthodoxy. <laughs> oh, you know, got all these creeds and, you know, we got to stay true to whatever the truth is. Yes. So we get so worried about it. So we don't want to expand our theological language. I want to go back to the concept of wholeness, which is really fundamental, Grace, to your work and to our work here. And and think about, for example, the recent uh, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court denying affirmative action. How do you think we should, how do we maintain a, a sense of our consciousness of wholeness? How do we live in these entangled energies in the face of such political divisiveness, political conflict? What advice do you give for a lot of people struggling in the world today, you know, just to live in the vitality of, of the flow? Yeah. So, you know, there is so much injustice in the world. Affirmative action is one aspect of college admissions. You know, I have three kids, one graduate of college, one just graduated this year, and one who is going to be a junior. You know, it's not just the affirmative action. There's also legacy, you know, that deals with so many white rich kids, you know, who get in not on their own merit, but through legacy and, you know, donors. there's so much inequality in college admission, you know, and if the Supreme Court without, you know, the affirmative action, college admissions can still look at last names, can look at, there's all these other things. You know, there's so many factors. I, you know, I just came back from Korea. Korea you know, they tr they don't have any legacy. They think that's like such a horrible thing. It's only based on college exams. So, you know, they're trying to be equal, but, you know, that itself is not equal either. But but at least it's a standard college admissions exam. OK, so so the descendants of the Samsung generation, like they don't just get an automatic into the university. No. Or any of the super real wealthy. So. Every year, there's one college entrance exam date. Fair. Those who are ill will, some of them leave the hospitals to write it because if you miss that one, you got to wait a whole year to do it. So, you know, there's so many inequalities in that way. But anyway, that's the standard test. And then you go in. So I was there this year and, you know, Yonsei I visited, which is one of the top universities, their graduates, their children cannot get in through legacy because they think that's so, that's like, so injustice. You cannot allow things like that to happen. So it's basically done 
just done through that one entrance exam. So from kindergarten till high school, everybody's preparing themselves this college entrance exam. And I think it's done in China and also Japan and maybe India. I'm not too sure about India, but that's why this college exam is such a stressful thing. Yes. Here in the we, there's so many things, but I think this legacy is a huge yeah. injustice because it's basically white rich kids who get in through the legacy program because many of us immigrants, you know, I studied in Canada, so I don't have the legacy. So anyway, the affirmative action, that part is problematic because when as an Asian American, you know, uh, we talk about model minority. So model minority came uh, about in the 1960s by white sociologists who came up with this fabulous term that they thought was so fabulous and they placed it upon Asian Americans. So Asian Americans suddenly overnight became these model minorities. And it was to say to the Native Americans, the African Americans, the Hispanic, uh, the Latinx community, that if only you work just as hard as Asian Americans, you will go to the top schools, you'll become rich, you will have great jobs, you will be wonderful citizens of America. So that's a myth because not all of us get to the top schools. Not all of us are rich. You know, some of the poverty, those who are living in poverty are Asian Americans. If you just go to Flushing or parts in LA, people are living in these rundown apartments, families living with shared bathrooms and shared area. So we're not all rich. We're not all doing well. We're not have these fabulous jobs. So it's a myth, but this myth was put into place to pit Asian Americans against other people. That's what this whole thing is. And it still stays in place even now in 2023, this model minority myth. And so if you have people of color fighting, the only people that benefit are the white people. So it's this whole problem of white supremacy, you know, so it, it's racism being played out yeah. and having us pit us against each other. And now with the Supreme Court justice, you know, getting rid of affirmative action. It's this whole model minority. It's this now everybody, the people of color are being pitted against each other. And then now white people will benefit from this. Yeah. Another day. So there's a lot of things moving hurts, but that's just one aspect. And to say that, oh, all Asian Americans wanted to get rid of affirmative action is the truth. Yeah. I saw the statistics and for the voting Asian Americans, I think 60% were against getting rid of the affirmative action. It was a 40% split or something, 46. Now the narrative is all Asian Americans were, oh, let's get rid of affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera, because it was a few Korean Americans who brought this issue up because mm. They get into the top schools, to Harvard, etc. But the reality is 60% of Asian Americans were not for the mm. But, you know, it's going to be problematic in so many levels. Next, Ilya and Gabby go deeper into their personal experiences of white privilege and its legacy. And finally... 
Ilya asks Grace more about her intersectional work on planetary solidarity and whether global justice and wholeness is within reach. I am so grateful, first of all, for, you know, the wealth of the richness of the Korean culture and the beauty of the Asian culture, which I've always wanted to actually, my original dream was to go to China, but that didn't work. So let's go together. I've never been to China, so let's go together. That would be awesome. I was in Taiwan one year and I love the culture. There's such a gentleness. So I'm so grateful for, you know, what finally has emerged here in terms of the richness. But, you know, I guess I never thought about being privileged as a white person because it's the type of thing where you are born into this stuff. And it just seems like I thought in my New Jersey neighborhood, like everyone was Italian American and everyone was Catholic. Like, so it was shocking to me to find out that, you know, my next door neighbor was Protestant and like, oh my God, there could be like Koreans and Hindus in the world. Are you kidding? Seriously? And they live in New Jersey? <laughs> it just seemed like so incredible. So, you know, I think one thing, this is, it's been a wake up call for white people for sure, because it's like, what, you know, doesn't everyone experience what I experience? And the answer is no, not at all. You know, <laughs> and that's, I mean, we do have to just be conscious of where we are and who we are and the beauty of it's more than what we are, you know? Yeah. Gabby, have you given, I'm just curious, in your own place of life, have you thought about, you know, race and your own position of things? A lot, actually. I feel like there's definitely like this thing where people in a position of privilege have this tendency to ignore the privilege they have. Like, it's not something that's comfortable to think about, like that I'm getting treated better than other people because of the way I look or like that kind of thing. And a term I heard the other day was the oppression Olympics, where it's like people will be like, you know, who's in a worse position than who? Who's in a worse position than who? And the only people who are benefiting from that are the people who are on the top who don't have to worry about it because they're not in a bad position. You know, like they say to the people below them, oh, but he has it worse or she has it worse. And the answer is it doesn't matter who has it worse because no one should have it worse. And the real issue is the people who are on the top and are allowing this to happen. Yeah. And as someone in a position of privilege, I feel that, you know, I have to, I have to talk about it. I have to, like, make an effort because it's ridiculous that I should be treated any better because of the way I look. No, oppression Olympus. I have to remember that one. That's used uh, within model minority when we are, you know, the whole of model minority is to pit us against each other. Then that oppression of Olympics always comes up. Who got oppressed more? Who suffered more here in the U.S.? The enslavement history, the genocide history, the indentured worker history. There's like so much history of racism. You know, how can you put one above the other? We have been oppressed in so many different ways and levels. And yeah. will have been murdered and killed in the name of uh, whiteness and etc. Let's ask this realistically. A hunger for wholeness. Do you think as a planet 
as a planetary community, we could one day, you know, look toward true wholeness as a community. Where, other words, where a human community, we may not be human, of course. Let's just put a personal community. So I'd like to just make sure that we have that technology piece there. But do you really think that planetary justice, we're actually a deep sense of care, compassion, mutuality, respect, forgiveness, and a peaceful coexistence. Do you think this is really pie in the sky? Or do you really think this is within our reach, even if it's a long-term reach? I want to ask Grace first, then I'll ask you, Gabby, because I'd be curious as to the, the spectrum of answers. For me, it's something that we should all strive for. So it shouldn't be this pie in the sky. Oh, it's up there, so let's not achieve it. I think that's something, I think that is like the gospel message. One of my co-edited books is called Planetary Solidarity and mm. Climate Justice Work. I think if we don't have this planetary solidarity with all of creation, we're going to, we're on a road to destruction. So I think that's something that we need to work on every day this gender justice, this racial justice, yeah. um, economic justice, this climate justice issue, they all intersect. They're all interrelated. And if we don't work for this wholeness, we will end up destroying the planet. If the planet is gone, we cannot live here. There is no place right now for us to go. So it is something that we desperately need to work on every day as people living on earth, as politicians, as students, as workers, as faith communities. It's something that we really need to strive for. I think that is the Christian calling to work to wholeness. Yeah. Because the other end is destruction of the planet. Planetary solidarity. I like that term a lot. Gabby, what are your thoughts here? I think that like, you know, a perfect society is probably not like a plausible goal, but I don't think that that should keep us from working towards it. I think that we should act as though a perfect union is within our grasp by going towards it as quickly as we can, because we need to aim for it, even if it's impossible or implausible. We need to get as close as we can, because frankly, we are destroying ourselves when we're not. Yeah, you know, I agree with both of you. And I think Actually, I think we have infinite potential within us. Mm -hmm. I don't think we even know our own capacity to create a new world. So even the idea like, no, that's pie in the sky or no, we'll never reach that. That's perfection. I'm saying, I think if you imagine it, you create it, it'll be a reality, right? And I think we have the capacity to create a new world. We have the means within us. I do think we have infinite potential. It's not just finite potential. Like, it's not like, oh, well, I'm just limited because, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. and, you know, I'm constantly fighting the government. I'm like, please, you know, we are what the world becomes, right? There's no world out there. We are the world and it's becoming. And so I, I think we have to get our heads around that. And this is where I think it goes back, you know, Greece, to your interest in coming to the chi, the energies that drive us, because if we keep having this disconnected mindset, like, God's going to save us, or there's going to be some apocalyptic, you know, finality, and we'll all be swept up, and 
well, we will destroy the world. I mean, we, we are the apocalypse as well, you know, so it, but I also think, you know, one of the things that we are really focused at in our Center for Christogenesis is the core energy of love, love as our deepest reality. In other words, a love that is irresistible, it is unitive, it is indestructible. No matter how hard you try to destroy everything, love will not only survive, it will continue to grow. And I think that that, you know, is what the name God is, you know, is that power of indestructible love, invincible love, the love that will bring us forward. And, you know, love is a great thing because, you know, people, when people fall in love, they don't just stay where they are, right? They're like, oh, it's so nice that we're in love. Like they're always dreaming and planning, like a whole new life is coming out, you know, and they're like, what can we do together? Where are we going to move? And like, you know, creating a new field. So it's dreamy. It's got a very imaginative, it's very, very otherworldliness. And I'm like, we have that power of love, you know, to dream and imagine. And I think this whole idea like of, oh my gosh, we're so many races. What are we going to do? And I'm like, like celebrate maybe, you know, like what, how the beauty of love. I mean, isn't that wonderful that there's just like 10,000 million languages and peoples and and faces. And it's like, this is the beauty of life. And I can't believe we want to homogenize it into like a vanilla milkshake. You know, it's all flat and one colored. Uh, and it's just like, why would we want to do something that dumb? But we do, because I think we're fearful of what the richness of life could look like. I think we fear ourselves. We, we fear our own power to really become something new, you know, a new type of person for a new type of planet. I love that term, planetary solidarity. I want to I wanna check that book out, Grace. Yeah, you can use it too. <laughs> it's an edited volume. And, you know, I did three edited volumes on gender justice and church doctrine. So that was the third one. Yeah. Really, and it's a global one. So we have African voices and Asian voices, South American and, and European and North American. So all of them. Fantastic, really. You know, yes, for example, I have a student who's from Africa, from Toga, and he's writing on process theology in Ubuntu. And when I learned about Ubuntu, I was like, wow. Yeah. It's a beautiful. I mean, it's a relational matrix of life where even personal identity is really part and parcel of the whole. And I'm like, oh my God, how did we allow this little Western thing to like just rise up and like this little dominant thing? You know, I think that goes back to like bad religion, basically. You know, we said like we have the truth. If you don't follow this, you're going to you know where. And it hasn't been helpful. And so I think good religion goes for a healthy way of life. Bad religion makes for, well, <laughs> not so good stuff, you know, so. I think that Ubuntu is so important and Asians have a very similar concept too. When I spoke in Africa and different parts of the world, Africans also have another word for chi. So they have their own word. In India, they have their own word too, but it's the same concept. And I find that so interesting and also in South America too. So when I talk about chi, to different people around the world, they have their own word, but the same concept. And I feel like this universal understanding of spirit 
that is moving people and is within them. I just find that so comforting and that we are all one people kind of living different lives and different languages and different flavors of food, etc. that make this world so beautiful and that we can all work together and become this planetary solidarity and work for It reminds me of David Bohm's idea, you know, we appear separate, we appear independent, but in our cosmic roots, we're all part of the one cosmic process. I think we separate ourselves into, you know, things like the mind, the body, the soul as separate things. Then we separate the human race into little groups based on, you know, things that people can't control. And then we divide them further and we divide, we divide, we divide. And we are really just one creation, you know, like there isn't a clear dividing line anywhere that isn't made up, in my opinion. So like, the same diversity that we're like, oh, this is so beautiful in other species. When we see it in our own species, we divide it and we say, no, 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 there, it's, it's not the human race. It's, there's Caucasians and then there's Africans. And then and we need to stop dividing ourselves into little pieces and start seeing ourselves as creation. You know, you said something very interesting. And I think Grace was saying the same thing. That's where you started. We divide ourselves, body, mind, spirit, and then we divide the races or we divide one another into groups. And that is so interesting insofar as we have allowed ourselves to be captivated by division when our true reality is unitive, which goes back to what you're both saying in terms of that oneness or union of that energy or relational energy. Wow, that is amazing. Grace, what are your final thoughts here or final parting words of wisdom to us this afternoon? I don't know about if I have any words of wisdom, but it's been such a joy to talk with you and Gabby on this podcast. I think, you know, having these rich conversations only helps us in the long run, you know, because I think learning from each other, from different peoples, from different generation and and people of different backgrounds. It's just so helpful. It really opens our eyes and our minds. Yeah. We are all connected as human beings. We are all one humankind and we need to love. Your focus on love. And that is missing so much because of these barriers of, you know, political barriers, these racial ethnic barriers, these gender and sexual barriers. There's so many barriers that are preventing us from loving one another, we really understand the energy, she and the vibration that is within all of creation. It's not limited just to human beings. Then I think that will really move us and push us and vibrate us to work for social justice, to work for climate justice, racial justice, gender justice, sexuality justice, and that we can really work for this wholeness that all of us are kind of talking about here today. So I'm just grateful for your platform and for your podcast and how you invite us to to share. So I'm just grateful for this time. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Grace. And thank you, Gabby, for your great insights. And thank you, Robert, for attentively being with us. Let's make sure we leave without a consciousness of divisiveness and with the energy of unity. Blessings and peace. This concludes our discussion with Grace G. Sun Kim. Next week, join us as we welcome comparative religion scholar and artist Patrick Beldio. A special thanks to our partners at the Fetzer Institute. As always, I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>